This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett. In this inaugural episode, I will introduce myself, explain my credibility and inspiration to speak out, stand up, and take action to drive the arc of change. I will introduce you to the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC, and explain who we are, what we do, and how we are fueling the arc of change. And finally, I will describe the content of the show, the topics we will cover, and explain why you as listeners should be inspired and excited to subscribe, listen, and become part of the arc of change. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Now, ARC is a coalition of dedicated people committed to eradicating racism and spreading anti-racism throughout our communities, our countries, and the world. This is the Arc of Change. But more on Arc a little bit later. I want to start this episode by introducing myself and explaining why you should listen to Donzo Leggett. Some of you may know me, many of you probably don't, but hopefully after I describe myself and my background, you will understand who I am and why I have both credibility and accountability to stand up, speak out, and take action to drive the arc of change, to eradicate racism and spread anti-racism. I'm originally from Key West, Florida which is the most famous island in the chain of islands called the Florida Keys in the United States of America. Now, Key West is located at the southernmost tip of the state of Florida, between the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. Literally, the Gulf is on one side and the Atlantic is on the other. Key West is 150 miles southwest of Miami and 90 miles north of Cuba, making it the southernmost point of the continental United States. So it has a very unique location. It feels more like it's part of the Caribbean than the mainland United States. And because of this unique location, it attracted a lot of different and unique people over the years and developed its own very unique culture over the years as well. My great-great-grandparents immigrated to Key West from the Bahamas over 150 years ago. And over the years, the island has welcomed many other immigrants and visitors from all over the world. People from Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and other islands in the Caribbean. South and Central America, Canada, Europe, Asia, and Africa. People of all different ethnicities, colors, beliefs, cultures, and lifestyles. Key West also has, for decades, had one of the highest gay populations 
per capita in the United States. So Key West has always been a little different from the rest of the state of Florida and the rest of the United States in general. It's always been a highly diverse and generally more inclusive place. Now, I'm not saying there's never been any issues, just like other places in the United States. Racism and hate do exist there. But overall, Key West is one of the more diverse and inclusive places in the country. A small island with a lot of very different people living together in relative harmony. In fact, Key West designer J.T. Thompson coined the phrase one human family and started distributing it on free bumper stickers and bracelets with that phrase printed on it to everyone in Key West, native Key Westers, visitors alike to remind them of the inherent unity and equality of all people. And the Key West City Commission adopted this as its uh, official philosophy for the city, believe it or not, in 2000. So if you visit Key West, you're bound to be given a one human family bracelet or bumper sticker like the hundreds of thousands of people before you have. So growing up in Key West, I learned the power and strength of diversity and inclusion early on in my life and how one can enrich oneself by being open to learning from others and learning about others. I learned that no matter all the unique differences, appearances, languages, colors, everything about the different people there, we're all the same. I had friends across almost every spectrum every group, every clique you can think of. I had native friends who were white, native friends who were black, all native to Key West. And yeah, we had cultural differences. There were things that we did that were different, things we talked about that were different. But the bottom line was, and still is today, we're all conks. By the way, conks, is what real natives of Key West are called. So we all consider ourselves conks, whether you're white or black. But I also had friends who were not conks, not native to Key West. They come from other parts of the United States. Many came to Key West as kids because their parents were members of the military, mostly Navy, because Key West had a large naval base, including a naval air station that was very, very active when I was growing up, especially during those Cold War years, due to the strategic location of Key West, specifically the proximity to Cuba. I had many friends from other countries, most notably Cuba, and many of whom I actually met recently after they arrived during the Mariel boat lift during the early 80s, and they spoke absolutely no English whatsoever. I had popular friends. Smart friends, athlete friends, nerd friends, choir friends, drama club friends, hip hop friends, breakdancer friends, rock friends, friends who had parents who were wealthy, friends who had parents that had very little money. I have friends who lived in million dollar homes and friends who lived in the trailer parks and in the projects. You name them, I had them as friends. Having so many different friends and acquaintances 
from so many different backgrounds taught me how to relate to pretty much anyone and hammered home to me what my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother always taught me, that I should never judge a book by its cover, only its contents. As there were so many people in Key West whom after I met them, I realized that they were absolutely nothing like the initial impression that their appearance suggested. You know, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother taught me a lot of things. They also told me that nobody is better than you, but you're not better than anybody else. They told me that we're all the same and that the key is what we choose to do with what we have and what kind of person we choose to be. You see, it was all about the choices that we make. I chose to be someone who saw people for who they were, not what they looked like, not how they talked, not where they were from. I was one of the few people who could connect with everyone in Key West and flow seamlessly between all these many diverse and different groups because I was able to identify and empathize with each person, connect with them on a personal level, bridge both real and preconceived gaps between us, challenge prejudices, theirs and mine, and ultimately build relationships. In 1986, I left Key West to attend Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, which is located in what is known as the Midwest of the United States. There I played American college football in what's called the Big Ten Conference. And yes, back then there actually were 10 teams in the conference. Now I think there's 14. Although I traded the the sunny weather in sandy beaches of Key West, Florida, for the snowy weather in cornfields of West Lafayette, Indiana, and don't ask me why, I did adjust really well to Purdue. Again, as in Key West, I was able to make friends across the vast spectrum of groups that a major university with 35,000 students offers. Now, back then, Purdue was about 90% white with about 2 to 3% of the students being African American. <laughs> I mean, I was a minority at Key West, but not to this extent. Key West was so much more diverse than Purdue. It was like another world at times. In fact, I met several white students who had never even seen a person of color, especially African American, not in person, not in real life. Many only knew of black people literally from what they saw on TV shows and the news. There were many times that white students would literally cross on the street to the other side to get to the other sidewalk to avoid having to walk by me because of fear, ignorance, and prejudice. <laughs> I remember one time a white student couldn't change to the other sidewalk because it was a one-way street and there was only one sidewalk. And as he approached me, I could just see he was absolutely terrified. When he got close to me, he put his head down as low as he could. He crouched 
and he tried to walk as far away from me as he possibly could. I mean, this dude was literally shivering with fear and it wasn't wintertime. So I knew he wasn't cold. I stopped and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said to him, it's cool, man. It's all good. So what's your name? He looked at me. His eyes were big as saucers and he swallowed real hard. But he did muster the courage to finally say that his name was Tim. I said, Tim, my name's Donzel. Good to meet you, man. I know you probably haven't met too many brothers, but we're not like what you see on TV. All right. Stay cool, man. Stay up. I tried to dap him up, but he he didn't know what that was. So I had to just give him a bro hug and I went on my way. From that day on, anytime Tim saw me, he would run across campus to make sure to say hello and tell me how he was doing and what he was up to. Tim told me that he was a farm boy from rural Indiana and he had never met a black person and he apologized for his ignorance. We became good friends. He even tried to get me to join his fraternity, which I turned down, of course, but I appreciated the gesture. The point is that I was able to break through the fear, the ignorance, and the prejudice at Purdue and make many connections and friendships like the one with Tim that continue to this day. Now, the football team was very different than regular campus because although Purdue's overall African-American student population was about 2 to 3%, like I said, the African-American representation of the football team was closer to 30%. Now, I had teammates from all over the country, but some of the black players and some of the white players had never really interacted much with people of other races based on where they were from. You see, even though Brown versus the Board of Education ended legal segregation in schools in 1954, De facto segregation actually still exists today because school district lines are drawn based on community housing lines and housing, for the most part, is still segregated. In other words, not very many black kids live in the suburbs of America where white kids live and not too many white kids live in the urban centers of America where black and brown kids live. So many of the guys I played with who came from rural towns or cities more than likely went to schools that were largely racially homogeneous. And so they didn't interact much with folks from other races. So for some of them, the team makeup was a little bit of a culture shock. But because Key West is such a small island, everyone at some point had to go to school together. When I was growing up, There was only one middle school and only one high school. So by the time I went to Purdue, I was already very comfortable connecting with people of many different backgrounds, ethnicities, and races. Back then, football teams usually hung out with subgroups. You know, either defensive players hung out together, offensive players hung out together, or position groups like offensive linemen would hang out together, or the linebackers would hang out together, or based on what state they were from, because uh, at a school like Purdue, which is in Indiana, Indiana is not really a big football state. So a lot of our team was recruited from outside of state. So you'd have a lot of the guys from like Texas hang out together or the guys from Florida would hang out together. But more often than not, the teams 
would also subdivide by race. You know, as an example, if, if in 1988, if you walked into our training table, that's what we call the place where we all eat our meals together. If you walked in in 1988 in our training table, what you would see is a divided room, segregated. You would see the black players on the right side. You would see the white players on the left side. Now, there was always one mixed table. But for some reason, the mixed table was always on the black player side, on the right side. Most of the time, I was at the mixed table. But I sat with the black players quite a bit, too. I also sometimes sat with the white players. Now, the coaches and other players knew that I was a guy who could kind of talk to everyone. Players would ask me, hey, what do these other players think? Hey, Mike, why are some groups do certain things? You know, I heard brother use this word. What does that mean? Uh, why do certain guys behave certain ways? Why do certain people listen to certain kinds of music? What does it mean? A little bit about cultural differences. I get a lot of those questions because people knew that I could kind of interact with everyone. People trusted me. They saw me as a link between these two groups or all these different groups. So just like in Key West at Purdue, I was one of the few who could flow seamlessly between pretty much any group. Whether it was interacting with farm boys on campus or my teammates on the football team, I was able to identify and empathize with them all. I was able to connect with them personally. I was able to bridge gaps, both real and perceived. I was able to challenge prejudices, again, theirs and mine. And I was able to ultimately build relationships. Now, since graduating from Purdue, I've had a very successful 27-year career as an executive in corporate America. I've led large teams across the United States in red states and blue states, from Iowa to Minnesota to California to Southern Ohio to Massachusetts to Northern Michigan to Tennessee to Illinois to Southern Indiana to Georgia and Missouri. I've led organizations across the rest of North America, including Canada and Mexico. I've led teams in Asia and Oceania, including China, India, Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, New Zealand, and Australia. I've led teams in the Middle East and Africa, including Dubai and South Africa. I've led teams in Europe, including France, Greece, Spain, Germany, and the UK. And I've led teams in South America, including Brazil, Argentina, and Venezuela. I've learned and appreciated the various histories of all these places and all the cultures of the people. And in some cases, even learned the languages. And I've led global teams made up of different people in different parts of the world, in different time zones, with different cultures that operated better than any other teams that I've ever been a part of. And no matter who I've worked with, what country or geography, I've been able to connect with every one of them, regardless of cultural differences, political systems, race, and even language. Again, like in Key West and at Purdue, I was able to identify and empathize with each person connect with them at a personal level, 
bridge gaps real and perceived with people across thousands of miles and entire oceans, challenge prejudices, theirs and mine, and ultimately build relationships, strong relationships. I tell you all of this to assure you that I have a tremendous amount of experience, passion, credibility, and success connecting with many, many different people around the United States and the world. And no matter what our differences appear to be on the surface, we are all the same. And I was able to connect with all of them at a human level. I have the unique perspective to tell you that regardless of all the apparent differences that exist between us, there is no real difference between us as people. We are truly one human family. We have so many more similarities as people than we do differences. Here are the things I can tell you that we have in common around the world. We all want to be valued and respected as human beings and individuals. We all value our families and want the best for them, even if that means less for us individually. We all want our lives to have meaning. And you know what? We all want the same thing for everyone else. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. Now, let me tell you a little bit about me personally. I'm a family man, a husband of 26 years, and a father of four adult children who've each grown up to be wonderful people. I couldn't be more proud of them. I'm also a son of two very loving parents. I'm a little brother, an uncle, a nephew, and a cousin. I'm also a friend, a mentor, a teacher, a coach, a learner, a supporter, an inspirer, a truth teller, and a community leader. I'm a respected global business leader and a concerned citizen of the world. I have been very fortunate in my life, but the fact is that I'm also a black man living in the United States of America. And that means that regardless of how well I'm doing, how successful I am as a family man and global business leader, or how much I'm respected and revered, there are those that hold racist views against me simply because of the color of my skin. I travel the world, and no matter where I go, Europe, Asia, South America, Africa, the Middle East, I'm usually safer in those geographies as a black man than I am in my home country of the United States, where a simple interaction with the police could become dangerous for me. But I understand that because I've dealt with it my whole life. I know that to some people, I'm just another N-word. You know, I haven't been called that a lot in my life, but I remember every single time that someone has called me that word as a racial epithet. From the first time in third grade 
to all the other times that it happened. And I still remember how indescribably infuriating and at the same time painful that it was. But what's even more painful to me is seeing the misery and inhuman treatment that other black and brown people are subjected to in this country on a daily basis and how there are many people, especially those who are successful, who are fortunate, who live in the suburbs of America that are blind and indifferent to it. You know, part of the reason is because they don't see poverty and racism or police brutality in their suburban communities up close on a daily basis. They don't experience it themselves. So it kind of becomes something that in their minds just doesn't exist. In other words, many successful people and suburbanites simply believe that racial disparities don't exist. Or if they do exist, they're either blown out of proportion or they only exist because of the failure and ineptitude of those who actually experience the racism and the disparities that come along with it. Look, I'm sure you've heard some of these statements before. Those people are just lazy. They just want a handout. Look, it's important to note that there are also some people who do recognize racial disparities and acknowledge them as being systemic and are doing something about it. There are many examples. And if you want to see one, visit joinarc.org and check out the brave people who have committed to taking action to eradicate racism and spread anti-racism by joining the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. But there are others who also see it and know that it's there and know that it is systemic and structural, but yet they still simply choose to ignore it. Or they choose to not take meaningful action because they don't have a sense of urgency to change it because it doesn't affect them directly. Or they just don't have the energy, the courage, or the conviction to take it on. So it's important to let you know that although, yes, I live in the suburbs, and yes, I am successful, and I have been blessed to not have been a frequent victim of racism and hate and injustice, I still see it. I acknowledge it. I recognize that it is systemic and I personally feel it. I feel it as if it were happening to me. And I have the sense of urgency, the energy, the courage, and the conviction to do something. No matter how fortunate I am, how successful I become, I still feel the hurt of the people who are subjected to racism and hate. And I refuse to stand by and not do something meaningful to change it. That means taking action, putting myself out there, not just donating money to make myself feel better, but using my platform to actually make a difference. Because if my family is subjected to it, then I feel it. If my friends are subjected to it, then I feel it. If my community is subjected to it, then I feel it. But here's where it gets different from a lot of people. If it's people that I don't even know, strangers that are subjected to it, I still feel it. 
whether they're black or brown or Asian or European or African, Latinx, Mexican, Central or South American, Middle Eastern, indigenous, whether they're gay or lesbian or trans or queer, whether they're women or men, whether they're Muslim or Christian or Hindi or agnostic or Buddhist, I still feel it. If it's them, it's me. Because we are all one human family. So I must stand up. I must speak out. I must take action. Because unlike many of those who are subjected to severe racial disparities and injustice and other hate-based prejudice, who can't stand up, who can't speak out, who can't take action for themselves, because they lack a platform to be heard or because they're disenfranchised, held down, or they don't speak the language or they're just simply afraid. I can stand up. I can speak out and I can take action. And I do have a platform to be heard. Look, although what's happening right now in the United States is the most visible example and most urgent when it comes to racial injustice, It's not like the rest of the world is immune to racism, classism, and hate. There are people all over the world who suffer injustice due to prejudice. And they're not all black and brown. And for some of them, their suffering may not even be visible to those around them. But they're still victims of hate and ignorance. The same hate and ignorance that fuels evils like racism, classism, misogyny, homophobia, and the like. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So even though they may be thousands of miles away in a foreign land and speaking a foreign tongue, I must stand up, speak out and take action for them as well. Because I can. The Ark of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Ark and join our movement. Now, I know some of you are probably saying, who the hell is Donzel Leggett to speak on this? Why should I listen to him? He's an executive. He doesn't experience these things. He lives in a big house in the suburbs. He doesn't face these challenges. But from my standpoint, this actually means I should have more accountability to speak out, not less, because I have been so fortunate. To me, it is those of us in the suburbs who live in the big homes, the successful business people, the professionals who are white, East Indian, Asian, African, Latinx, African-American, all of us who have benefited most from this unfair society that must have the courage to say something because we can. To me, it's insane to have the perspective of, hey, well, I worked hard. I made it so I don't have to do anything to help anybody else. I should just stay quiet, not bring any attention to myself, blend in and enjoy the fruits of my labor. Hey, those people should have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and worked hard just like I did to make it. First of all, nobody, let me say that again, nobody makes it on their own. Everybody who makes it 
had some help along the way from somebody. And some of us, whether we want to admit it or not, got more help than others. We also can't ignore the fact that there are generational injustices, like redlining, for example, that was created to actually prevent people of color from owning homes in white areas. That's been committed over time and continues to be committed through to today, creating and sustaining the ongoing segregation and severe economic disparities in homeownership and wealth creation that are clearly evident between suburban America and the urban centers. This is why to this day you do not see many people of color in the suburbs. This is why you don't see police brutality in the suburbs. This is why you only see poverty and homelessness in the urban centers. It was designed to be that way. This is the legacy of systemic and structural racism. This is what the NBA players were saying when they stopped the playoffs following the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, they were thinking to themselves, what good is it to be a successful NBA player, a professional athlete, multimillionaire, and a star when racism and hate is tolerated and accepted all around me and encouraged by the president? And unarmed people who look like me are killed by police. And the killings are shown on TV and on social media over and over. And there seems to never be accountability for the killers. And this creates long-term trauma for me and my family. Even though you see me on television and you celebrate me when I make a big shot or score a great touchdown, my family and my friends can't even feel safe coming to the game going home from the game, or even just sitting at home watching the game, and neither can I. They're saying that they've had enough of seeing their brethren perpetually in poverty and seeing them killed, hearing them cry out for help and not be heard. They're tired of Black lives not mattering to enough people. They simply had enough and felt they had to stand up, speak out, and take action because they can, even if it meant negative repercussions. You know, the Detroit Lions were one of the NFL teams that canceled their practices the same day the NBA players boycotted the playoffs to show their support for the NBA players' statement to call attention to the issue of racial injustice. The longtime quarterback of the Lions and team captain, Matthew Stafford, one of the highest paid players in the league, who happens to be white and from a red state, Texas, and played college football at the University of Georgia, also a red state, recently wrote an article called, We Can't Just Stick to Football. In the article, Stafford writes, police brutality, white privilege, racism, it's all real. And so we can't just stick to football, not as a team, not as an organization, and we shouldn't as a country. He's saying that professional athletes, in particular star white athletes, must speak out and use their platform to drive change. Stafford wrote that it's time we stop pretending and defending 
and just closing our eyes to what's happening right in front of us. We have to listen and we have to keep having these hard conversations. No one was expecting Stafford to speak out, but he believed that he had to. He understands that because of his privilege, he has a responsibility and an accountability to stand up, speak out, and take action because he can. So to me, the question isn't, why am I speaking out? And who the heck do I think I am to talk on this topic? The question is, why aren't more of you speaking out? The professionals, the doctors, the CEOs, the accountants, the business owners, the executives, the administrators, all of you know better. And you also know that if you speak, you will be heard because you have a platform. And who do you think you are, really? What type of person do you choose to be? Is this the country you really want for your family, your kids, your grandkids, your partner, your friends? Is this the legacy you want? I ask myself those same questions. Like my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother did years ago. What type of person do I choose to be? And I answered, I choose to be the person who sees and values people for who they are, not what they look like, how they talk or where they're from, not who they love or what their faith is or what part of the world they came from. And I choose to be the person who speaks out, who stands up and who takes action to drive the arc of positive change to eradicate racism and hate and spread anti-racism. And that's what I'm doing now and will continue to do because as the late, great John Lewis said, if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC, which is a group of dedicated people committed to eradicating racism and spreading anti-racism throughout our communities, our countries, and the world. Now, I developed the idea to start ARC about a month after the tragic murder of George Floyd in downtown Minneapolis, only about 30 minutes from my home. Immediately following this horrendous incident, I received many emails and texts from well-intended people telling me how sorry and sad they were and how their hearts went out to me. The more I received these messages and the more I read them, the angrier I got. I was angry because not one of them expressed the outrage that I was feeling and that I thought they should also be feeling as human beings. Not one of them expressed the desperation and urgency for change that I felt we all should be demanding. And most importantly, not one of them expressed any specific actions that they were going to personally take to do something to differentially drive change. It felt like they were just sorry for me. But they didn't acknowledge the systemic racism that led to this tragedy and that happens every day to black and brown people all over this country. 
They didn't acknowledge that by tolerating, overlooking, or ignoring the omnipresent structural systemic racism that exists in our communities, we enable the unconscionable and inhuman treatment of black and brown people that we've all witnessed far too many times. So I made a video to express my feelings, expose the truth, and issue a call to action. And I uploaded it to social media. Now, that video has been viewed over 30,000 times, and I received feedback from all over the world, overwhelmingly positive. But there was one common theme I heard from a number of people who responded to that video, and that theme was that many people were also angry and heard my call to action. They wanted to take action and do something, but they didn't know what to do or where to start, or how to make a difference, or if they, as one person, could actually create a movement big enough. So I came up with the idea of creating the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC, as an organization in which everyone and anyone could make a significant impact by first transforming themselves to be anti-racist, and then transforming the people in their personal networks to be anti-racist as well. Then encouraging those in their networks to join ARC and do the same with their networks to create a cascading exponential spread of anti-racism, a movement to change the world. And since racism at its core is taught person to person and spread person to person, to eradicate it and replace it with anti-racism, we must teach and spread anti-racism person to person as well. Therefore, the objectives of the Arc of Change podcast is number one, to teach and spread anti-racism person to person over the podcast airwaves. Number two, to educate, raise awareness, and change mindsets through sharing stories and having difficult discussions of relevant and difficult topics regarding race and hate, as well as processes to help you transform to anti-racism and build your capability to influence those in your personal networks to also transform and adopt anti-racism. And number three, to inspire you to stand up, speak out, and take action and join the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition and help drive the arc of change. The Arc of Change podcast will predominantly be a single host format show, but there will be episodes focused on interviews and discussion with special guests to provide unique perspectives. It's important to note that the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition is a global organization and we're open to everyone and anyone that is willing to commit to do the hard work of eradicating racism and spreading anti-racism. We welcome all races, ethnicities, nationalities, all genders, sexual orientations and identities. And we also welcome all religions and political views, as long as the core value and purpose of eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism is held above all. Therefore, on the Arc of Change podcast, we will also ensure that topics we cover are relevant and inclusive to our broad constituency. A few example topics we plan to cover in upcoming episodes are, what is the difference between racist, non-racist, 
and anti-racist. How to approach race conversations with those in your network who are difficult to deal with. Why is there so much focus on the United States if this is a global organization? And the very timely and critically important topic of our next episode, addressing one of the top questions I receive, which is, if all political views are welcome to join ARC, why are you so vocal about voting no to 45? Hopefully, these topics pique your interest and give you a good idea of the type of topics we will address on this podcast. But we will also take your feedback and requests for topics as well, because helping you spread anti-racism is not just about inspiring you to act, but also engaging you in the conversation and meeting your content needs where you are. So in closing, if you're still not sure why you should subscribe and listen to the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett, consider this. If you're not sure or don't believe that racism and hate are problems, you should subscribe and listen to the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett to be educated so you are making conscious decisions and have a place where you can have some of your tough questions discussed and answered or at least addressed in a transparent way. If you believe that we must eradicate racism and hate so that true equality can exist in our communities, our countries, and our world, but you don't know what to do, where to start, or how to take action, then you should subscribe and listen to the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett as we build your knowledge, capability, and confidence to act. And if you already believe in anti-racism and are doing good work to spread it, you should subscribe and listen to the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett to learn more about anti-racism and discover more that you can do. Because none of us know all there is to know and are doing all that we can do as long as racism still exists. So if you want to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism and spreading anti-racism, then you must subscribe and listen to the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or Arc, please visit us at joinarc.org. That's J-O-I-N-A-R-C-C dot O-R-G. You can also search for our podcast on your favorite podcast hosting sites and subscribe to the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett. I greatly look forward to our next episode and opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by ending racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.